Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we've got for you this week. Coming up today, Tom will tell us the inside story of the 777X's wingtips while I take a look at Alaskan startup Northern Pacific and where it intends to fly. I'll see why falling taxi times are a good thing for Europe, or maybe not, and Joe will explain why Boeing isn't so focused on hydrogen right now. Finally, Tom will take a look at United Airlines' first 100% SAF-powered flight. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show, and I am still mentally sitting on a lounger in Dubai. (laughs) I know it was a month ago now, not quite a month ago, but you know, I'm still there. So I wanted to talk about something that I learned in Dubai, if I may. Go for Um, it. Because I'm still fanboying over the 777X, you know, like the A380 hasn't been knocked from top place yet, but... (laughs) It's getting there, isn't it? (laughs) Well, um, well, yeah, but you know what I found? I was just fascinated by these wingtips. You know, we saw them up close with the locking mechanism and all, and it was fascinating. Um, and what I found really interesting was we saw the plane flying overhead, and, you know, you wouldn't have thought anything at the wings just seeing that. But mm. when it's on the ground, you know, the wingtips really look like a shark's fin poking out of the water. Yeah. Um, what I found really interesting was that, um, you know, um, you and I, we chatted with one of the test pilots at the planes, uh, Brian Carlisle, and he was mm-hmm. telling us why they have the wingtips. So basically, the wings, if they're fully extended, they're longer than what's on the existing 777 aircraft. So by folding them up, it takes the same wingspan as a 777 aircraft. So mm-hmm. it can. it's a lot more maneuverable at air, uh, airports because if they didn't fold down, the jet would then have a wingspan equivalent to the Boeing 747 or the Airbus A380, which would mean significant challenges for the plane at smaller airports. Um, you know, even London Gatwick, you know, that's getting the A380 back soon, but it can only handle it at a handful of gates. Um, mm. It certainly can't go under the uh, bridge that can't... The, uh, 747 can go under if I'm correct mm-hmm. um, but you know so basically it's it's a, a space saving thing because with the folding wingtips the aircraft can just slot into operations like any other 777 whereas if it didn't have them it would be a whole new um, size of aircraft but you know what I found really interesting was how much um, attention Boeing has been putting into making sure that these are as safe as can be because, you know, pilots aren't necessarily used to them. Um, the no. 777X or the, the, the 777s now don't, you know, or pretty much any commercial aircraft now, you don't have to think before you turn on the runway, oh, have I put the wingtips down? <laughs> <laughs> so Carlisle told us that pilots looking to fly the jet are going to need to undergo level D simulator training, which is going to bring them up to speed with some changes on the aircraft. Uh, such as the heads-up display, though, this is optional for the 777X. I know we saw it when we were in Dubai mm-hmm. and the folding wingtips. And it's possible to set the wingtips to automatically retract once, you know, and the plane drops below 50 knots while landing. And mm. it takes about 20 seconds for them to go up, but it, they won't automatically unfold before takeoff. Because, um, you know, if they did, maybe they'd go down in the wrong place and end up hitting a building or so. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that that task still falls to the pilots. and. I mean, obviously, it's perfectly 
plausible that the pilots could forget to do that. And Boeing is aware of this and has built several safety mechanisms into the aircraft to stop it from taking off with the wingtips folded. So uh, Carlisle started by telling me that um, the airlines are going to develop a standard operating procedure. So, you know, they'll be go- uh, pilots will be going through the before takeoff checklist and it will... Um, part of one item on that will be have you put the wingtips down mm-hmm. and you know if you if the plane notices it's taxiing onto the runway and this hasn't been done um, the pilots will get a message saying that the checklist is incomplete so that means that uh, you know they haven't done it and the wingtips are still folded and hopefully that will be the point where they'll just fold them down maybe they'll spend 20 more seconds on the runway it's not the end of the world although it's maybe not ideal at the world's busiest airports mm-hmm. Um if they continue down the runway and start to add power, they'll get a takeoff configuration warning. And if the aircraft goes above 50 knots, this is what I thought was uh, interesting. He said that it, the, the plane is going to then reject the takeoff um, rather than try and take off without the, the wingtips. So I thought that mm. was um, really fascinating. And, you know, I just can't wait to see these landing at Frankfurt every day. Yeah, with the wings automatically folding up once it slows mm. down. That would be pretty cool. Um, mm. I think, you know, there was quite a lot of Avgeek love for the switch, <laughs> which uh, I'm not sure we actually got to see because there was such a crowd no, around the cockpit yeah. when we were on the 777X. Um, but I saw lots of other people's photos and there's actually a mm. switch in kind of the overhead control panel that says wingtips and it's like and, a yeah. switch up or down. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, the way they've really thought about making it because I, when I was doing my aviation degree at uni, we had a lecture or two on button design in the cockpit and how you right. can make uh, make everything slightly different. So, uh, you know, it, it's sort of part of it, you know, like if you're touching this button, you may feel, hang on, that that doesn't feel like the button I need. So the, the, the whole wingtip thing, um, it kind of looks a bit like a wingtip, but then yeah. the position of it on the panel, you know, it's not like a full 180 degree. It's 90 degrees between the positions. So uh, it looks like the wingtip's up or it's sideways. Yeah, very clever stuff. And uh, mm. yeah, definitely geeking out over the button. <laughs> yes. I wish I'd seen it. It's a it. switch, not a button. <laughs> switch, sorry, switch. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk about something that's using another Boeing aircraft, but not mm. such a new and groundbreaking one. And that's startup airline Northern Pacific. Um, so since we heard about this new airline out of Alaska, they've been clear that they want to connect the Far East with the lower 48 US states. Um, mm. You know, it's all about leveraging the geographic position of Anchorage to provide a kind of stopover opportunity that's a bit like Iceland Air does um, between Europe and and the US. Um, Mm. So we chatted to CEO Rob McKinney as part of our Future Flying Forum um, a few weeks ago now, goodness. uh, We've just been so busy talking about Dubai, we haven't really gotten around to to feeding back on this. But Mm. he actually told us um, in a bit more detail exactly which cities he's looking to target, um, which I thought was really interesting because obviously there's been quite a lot of speculation. Um, So as you'd expect, they've done loads of analysis and they're going to pick what they think has the strongest potential to be able to fill their 757s every day. Mm. Um, so initially, they're looking at Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya and Seoul on the Asian side, um, all major cities and all within reach of the 757 from Anchorage. Um, and on the US side, they're looking at Orlando, New York, Las Vegas, Houston, um, which will also be a potential maintenance base for them, as well as Los Angeles and San Francisco. 
Um, mm. So, you know, that's a lot of big names there and a lot of busy airports that spring to mind. Um, and pre-COVID, it probably would have been quite difficult for an airline like Northern Pacific to get slots at those airports. Um, but, you know, times have changed. And he said, you know, he's got opportunities now that just didn't exist in 2019. So mm. they're even having conversations with places like Narita and Incheon to get slots. Um, and mm. they've had larger airports in the US, including JFK and SFO, actually reaching out to them and saying that they've got space for a new entrant. So, um, you know, it's really a timing play. They're, they're really leveraging the timing. Um, mm. And this is one of the reasons that they are flying those old 757s or planning to fly them. So um, as we've discussed before, they're going to be entirely comprised of the 757 for the first year or two. Um, and they will start operations once they've got 12 aircraft in the fleet. Um, they've already secured the first six. Uh, number one is actually in maintenance and being painted and is going to be flying up to Alaska in the new year, quite excitingly. Um, but he obviously can't start this business model until he's got a certain level of fleet. Otherwise, you just can't do the stopover with one plane. You know, you need mm. you need several. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's described these older narrow bodies as not Mr. Right as much as Mr. Right now. Um, yep. So, you know, he knows there's new technology aircraft out there. The A321, for example, would be ideal for these routes. Um, but there is a bit of a wait. They're much more expensive to lease. Um, so, you know... He really wants something that's ready to go when the lights turn green. Um, and mm. a lot of these aircraft are coming from American Airlines retired fleet. So there's plenty of them around. Um, he's just negotiating some real rock bottom leasing rates. Um, mm. So, you know, my take on this is the business model could work. Um, yeah. He discussed, you know, Alaskans get really irritated by the fact they need to fly to Seattle, basically, and then essentially right back over the roof of their house in order to get to Asia. Um, mm. You know, and if you look at the Great Circle kind of routing between US cities and Asia, it basically crosses Anchorage or comes within about 100 miles of it. So you're not going out of your way. You have got the stop, which obviously would be a downside to people that are looking to get there quickly. Um, mm. But for people coming into the States, you know, I think Asia particularly they're often looking to have a bit of an adventure and where yeah. better to do that than Alaska um, but even if they don't want to use the stopover there is a major advantage actually within Anchorage airport itself so there's a whole terminal there the north terminal which is barely used at the moment um, it's got an FIS for immigration there's hardly any queues you know there's well there's never any queues really because there's so few passenger airlines using that um, mm. so for people looking to come into the states it would be a great option uh, rather than queue up for a million hours at JFK or LAX, you know, you can immigrate there and then get the connecting flight straight down to the lower 48 and just walk in. Um, mm. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how it works. I, I don't think we'll see them flying until quite a bit later in 2022. But, uh, you know, everything's in motion. It is going to happen. And uh, best of luck to them. Yeah, I agree. Um, definitely best of luck to them. I wanted to come back across the pond slightly to Europe and talk about taxi times, because doesn't that sound exciting? Not really, Tom, but I'm <laughs> sure you're going to make it exciting. Well, I mean, you'd think that shorter taxi times are good for flights and passengers. I mean, after all, nobody celebrates when they land on the Polderbahn at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. And, you know... <laughs> Generally, shorter taxi times are good for aviation and passengers, though, you know, it was interesting because Eurocontrol did reveal that there are some drawbacks to it. So um, I wanted to sort of dive into this because according to Eurocontrol's new data, um, some European airports have seen their taxi uh, times drop by as much as, as much as nine minutes compared to 2019. So before That's the pandemic. Good. Very um, good. 
And, you know, this data even accounts for the fact that traffic recovered by 60 to 70% across the summer. So it's not um, solely because of less traffic, although that probably helps. Um, and, you know, the, the airports that saw the most reduction came from across Europe. So Istanbul's uh, new airport saw uh, one of the most significant drops with the average taxi time dropping from four, 24 minutes to just 15 minutes. That's nine mm. minute drop. And Gatwick also dropped from 22 minutes to 13 minutes. And, you know, in general, these drops are good for the industry because shorter taxi times mean the engines are running for less time. So it means fewer CO2 emissions. And, you know, like it's not major CO2 emission drop, but, you know, every little helps if mm. um, as there is anything to go by. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if the time savings persist going forwards, they also mean that the airlines can plan um, their fleets more efficiently while passengers spend less time in a metal tube. Um, and, you know, while it may be hard to believe, there are actually a couple of downsides to short haul flights saving time during the outbound taxi phase. So, Basically, it comes from the fact that there's more uncertainty when flights take off early. Um, Eurocontrol revealed that early flights could lead to congestion in specific parts of airspace because um, when they take off 10 or more minutes earlier, uh, you know, they arrive, say, in France unexpectedly early uh, or wherever. So then the controllers there are suddenly like, hang on, you're already here. Um, and <laughs> on the other side, um, some airspace is flow related to stop it becoming overloaded. And if um, the aircraft, again, don't arrive in sequence, that can lead to unnecessary delays. But, you know, My also goodness. what I found... Yeah. What Sorry, I, I just feel like Eurocontrol's being a total negative Nelly. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll speaking get... as a passenger, let's let's yeah. celebrate the shorter taxi times. Oh my goodness, you've arrived I mean, 15 minutes early. What on earth are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, Eurocontrol did reiterate that taxi time reductions are welcome, but they just need to be stable <laughs> so that airlines can plan around them with confidence. Because, um, you know, if, if an aircraft does take off early and all goes to plan during the flight and it arrives at the destination airport early... Um, maybe the destination airport isn't expecting or ready to deal with the plane. And finally, you know, um, if airlines are always flying slightly less um, than needed, they're going to have slightly more fuel than needed. And, you know, I, again, I think this is like a negligible thing, but, you know, it could add up yeah. across no, the I fleet do, across I do time. understand. I do understand. Yeah. It does just feel a bit like... Oh, let's find the one way to make yeah. this bad news. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they were they were very clear that overall it's great for the industry if it continues. <laughs> but the problem is the uncertainty because, you know, they're not consistently taking off early and all this. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you know, I just found it interesting because it's very much a big picture thing. And it's something that you don't notice if you don't look into it. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's very interesting. And those little tiny savings are what mm. are going to make the big difference. You know, we, I've yeah. spoken a lot about that, I think, in the past. Um, but one of the things that will make a big difference is the new fuel of the future. Um, mm. You know, airlines everywhere are pushing for a more sustainable future industry. Um, we've seen big leaps being made in electric aviation, but there's still a lot of uncertainty over whether it's applicable for larger aircraft. Sustainable mm. fuel holds great potential, which you'll 
going to talk about a bit more in a minute. Mm. Um, but, you know, there is the question over whether we can produce enough in time. And then, of course, there's hydrogen. Um, now, on the surface, hydrogen appears like a very appealing prospect. It's lighter than fossil fuels on the aircraft itself. It produces only water vapour as a byproduct, And it's got around two and a half times more energy per kilogram than kerosene. Um, but that is very much a surface level interpretation. And there's a lot of downsides to trying to use hydrogen as well. Um, it's mm. also, it's very difficult to utilise in its natural form. So it needs to be super cooled and super compressed before it can be used as a fuel. Um, mm. And I had a really good chat with a guy called Chris Raymond, um, who is Boeing's first ever chief sustainability officer um, about this topic. Uh, yeah. Now, this was a role that was created in mid last year to advance Boeing's approach to sustainability. And this chap, he was so interesting. I think you remember I was in Boeing chalet for at least half an hour longer than I was supposed I, to be. Yeah, it, sounded, it seemed like an hour. I was like, has, has uh, Joe just like taken a job at Boeing and will never come back? Um, we, they but, had to drag me away. He was so interesting yeah. to talk well, to. You know, I didn't get to chat with him directly, but I did hear him speak a couple of times while I was in Dubai and that was fascinating in itself. Yeah, he's a complete veteran and, uh, mm. you know, very, very knowledgeable, um, particularly on the sustainability issues. And we were chatting about the kind of the reason that Airbus is so focused on hydrogen and the mm. reason Boeing doesn't seem to be. Um, so one of the reasons is the difficulties with aircraft design. Um, now, hydrogen requires about four times the volume to get the same amount of energy. So you need mm. massive, great big tanks for it. Um, and you end up with a plane that is kind of more fuel tanks than it is passenger capacity and really yeah. that you know that starts to alter the shape of the aircraft and risks the overall efficiency of the plane and I think if anybody caught that fly zero hydrogen plane concept that was released this week um, mm, you know do have chubby. a check it out it's a chunker isn't it it's got, mm. it's got the they call them cheek tanks um, which are kind of like running along the bottom part of the fuselage and make it mm. just look like it's had a few too many mince pies this Christmas um, mm. very, oh, very, that's something I haven't had yet <laughs> very odd looking aircraft um, um, but there's also the question of whether aviation fuel is the best used for hydrogen. Um, you know, to produce hydrogen, you require massive amounts of electrical energy. And if that energy mm. is not coming from renewables, then hydrogen's no longer a clean energy source at all. Um, mm. They are building massive electrolyzer plants to produce hydrogen. Uh, we talked about one that's on the outskirts of Glasgow, and they're going to be using a 40 megawatt solar farm to produce about eight tonnes of green hydrogen a day. It would be the mm. UK's biggest electrolyzer plant. Um, and that could produce um, enough power to supply 550 daily bus trips between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Um, so <laughs> I know that's yeah. a bit, bit of a random you know, topic, but when you look I at was, how much... Sorry, I was chatting um, to somebody about this the other day and they were making the point about not hydrogen, but even with SAFs, you know, if you take the whole global supply of SAFs um, at the moment and use it for just one major airline, it would be mm. gone within a day. Exactly. Um, so that I saw an estimate from a company called Kearney that said even a small turboprop aircraft would need 1.4 tonnes of hydrogen for a 1,500-kilometre trip or 930-ish mm. miles. Um, so, you know, you could do 550 50-mile bus trips between two Scottish cities or maybe mm. five or six short return flights in a turboprop per day from the UK's biggest hydrogen plant. You know, it's kind of like, where should we be using it? Um, mm. You know, 
and then you know you've used all the electricity to turn the hydrogen to produce the hydrogen in the first place and then you need to use more to turn it into a jet fuel and then there's no infrastructure so there's the risk it's going to be driven around the country in massive trucks um, yep. so at the hydrogen moment hydrogen powered trucks <laughs> <laughs> possibly at the so moment then there's no hydrogen to transport <laughs> because they've used it on the yeah. trip yeah i understand it's it's a bit of a misnomer but you know boeing isn't saying that it's not possible i mean it mm. probably is possible but he said when you get into the life cycle carbon analysis of where hydrogen is right now their assessment is it would actually be worse than fossil fuels so mm. that is why they're not focusing on it entirely that's not to say that they're ignoring it completely um you know mm. in fact boeing was boeing's been working with hydrogen since 2008 um they flew the world's first crude flight using flight uh, fuel cells back in 2008 um and they flew um they've they've been flying a drone called the phantom eye on liquid hydrogen since 2011 so they're very mm. involved with hydrogen um but for boeing it's not something that they see as an immediate kind of priority they think that investments are better placed elsewhere in the short term to put into projects that can actually make a difference today um mm. so you know you might turn around and say well airbus says it's going to have a hydrogen plane by 2035 yeah it might have the first flight of a prototype aircraft by 2035 that doesn't solve all the infrastructure problems that doesn't mm. solve any of the production or certification issues it could be mm. another 10 15 years beyond that before they start to enter revenue service and then, of yep. course, you've got, you know, you've got to renew the whole entire global fleet before that makes a difference to climate change. So for Boeing right now, they're still going to carry on exploring hydrogen and doing their tests. But right now, mm. SAF is where it's at. Um, you know, Chris said, if the goal is to lower carbon emissions, then we've all got to be focused on SAF in the near term because they need something that can lower the carbon emissions of the airplanes that are flying right now. I mean, it's mm. a no brainer, really. I don't think I needed to say that. But, um, you know, SAF's getting the supply up and getting them onto aircraft and getting 100% SAF usage is where there's going to be the most difference made in the short term. Um, and Boeing's actually already set a goal of ensuring all of its aircraft are 100% compatible with SAF by 2030. Um, mm. So that's not that far away. I know it sounds like ages away, but we're already nearly into 2022. So mm. by 2030, if we can get the production side of things right, hopefully we'll see a lot more SAF flights. Mm. And I know um, Rolls-Royce actually want to have their entire product lineup on 100% SAF uh, certified at least by next year. Uh, sorry, 2023. So um, mm, that's it, really it's good. quite exciting all around. And I mean, just sort of to segue, sticking with Boeing and SAF, I wanted to talk about United Airlines' um, interesting flight. And, um, you know, they've got actually a lot of fl uh, flack on this flight because they called it the first... Um, passenger flight with 100% SAF and mm -hmm. technically that's right but technically that's also wrong and I'll sort of go into <laughs> why um, okay you know it is technically the first flight on 100% SAF because one of the engines was running on 100% SAF but the problem was the other engine was running on normal aviation fuel so I, I guess a lot of people have seen first flight running on 100% SAF and thought the whole flight was on 100% SAF. So it's, it's mm. not quite 
I mean, I guess if you averaged it out, it was a 50% SAF flight. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there was a reason why they did this, because currently aircraft are only generally allowed to fly on a 50-50 blend of sustainable aviation fuels and traditional fossil fuels. Um, you know, like most things, exceptions can be made. And I saw a photo from the cabin of this flight, which had a big um, sticker in it saying, this is an experimental aircraft. Um, yeah, that wouldn't have been too scary at all as you're boarding your flight. Experimental well, I, uh, plastic. Along the side. <laughs> I, I, when they say passengers, I don't feel like it was a commercial flight, but rather one where all of the guests were invited. Um, because you know mm, there were some, possibly. Um, there were big names from like United, Boeing, CFM uh, on board the flight, and what they wanted to basically prove was that um, flying with 100% SAF is um, there's like there's no operational difference between the two fuels and what what way to prove that then by running them simultaneously that's what mm. um boeing and um united and all of that were doing um so like i said one of the um engines was running off 100% saf the other one was running off um normal jet fuel and they were measuring sort of how it affected the operations and it was the first time that like such a feat had been attempted so i think it's quite exciting but um, it is what I found was really interesting was that American Airlines wanted some of the attention, you know, um, just an hour and a half after United had said, oh, we're doing this um, sustainable aviation flight today. Um, American Airlines came out with its own announcement saying that they'd signed to take delivery of 16 million gallons of a uh, 4060 blend of SAF um, <laughs> over the next seven years. Um, so, you know, what, I guess what if did you, Delta say? <laughs> I didn't see anything from Delta, but I just thought it was uh, very well timed that they came yeah. out within one and a half hours of each other. And uh, it could be coincidence, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Always interesting to watch the rivalries. I find uh, yeah. aviation's better than EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's about all we've got time for today, but we hope you enjoyed the podcast and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.